Well, thank you, Brother Paul. And again, just to re-echo what he said, thank you to our music team that did such a great job of preparing our hearts and leading us to Jesus. God is our audience when we sing. It's not to perform. It's not to show off. It is simply to adore the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And may God indeed add his blessing to the reading of his word. It is good to be here with you. Um, And here we are. Here we are in John chapter 11, going to finish this chapter officially now halfway through the gospel of John. I've titled this series Conversations with Christ. And today, as you've already heard it read to you, you saw a series of reactions to the powerful display of God in Jesus Christ. So it's reacting to the power of Jesus. But before I even get into that, I'm going to warn you, I've got a bit of a longer introduction, and I'm going to walk us very quickly through our passage. I want it to be, first of all, to start off with the fact that we are 19 Sundays now into this quote-unquote new normal. And I want to give you all a compliment Even today, we've had to change things again. Our live stream is purely on YouTube. You don't see it. You see links in Facebook, but it's not live on Facebook. And that's because we've had some problems with servers and things that are outside of our control. But I want to give you a compliment and give you some encouragement. 16 weeks since this started on May the 5th or March the 15th. Debbie and I have come to the church offices that we newly moved into and each Sunday For Debbie and I, really, nothing much changed in our routine. We got up, I still studied for my sermons, got dressed, got showered, all that kind of stuff came in, not in that order, I got showered and then got dressed, and then came to church and kind of here felt a little bit normal. But after 16 weeks, the elders came around me and they gave me a gracious two-week time frame to just be at home, and Jennifer and Grace were so gracious and kind to come in and lead us in music, and so many people are a part of this that many times you don't even see how many people are involved in the technology to make this happen. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I was home with Debbie, with our family, in our rec room, on a couch, TV on, YouTube, listening to Jen and Grace, and listening to Matt and Dave preach, and I joined you all via the internet, and I had everything open, Vimeo and YouTube and Facebook and all of these things. And honestly, I was thankful. I was blessed. I was humbled by everybody's efforts, and I hated it. It quite simply wasn't the same at all. It was weird. It was hard to sing, hard to feel connected, hard to sense community. It was hard to relate. It was both overwhelming and underwhelming all at the same time. I looked at Debbie several times and I felt, man, this is so self-serving and self-focused. After all, it was just me and Deb and our family. As I thought about all of this, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for getting up on Sunday mornings and tuning in. Thank you for your many texts and emails and phone calls of encouragement. Thank you for pictures of you and your families gathered around computer screens or televisions. Thank you for sticking with it. But I want to remind you that Paul spoke of trying times like this as well. 
In Philippians, Paul is writing from house arrest in Rome. He's handcuffed to a member of the imperial guard. He's been falsely accused years earlier, arrested, beaten, held in prison in Caesarea for two years. Finally, he appeals to Rome. On his way to Rome, he's shipwrecked and stranded on the Isle of Malta, where he as well faces all kinds of hardship. Finally makes it to Rome. Now he's under arrest. People are criticizing him. And here's what he writes in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the verse that many of you know. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the context of that verse, by the way, that so many of us have on coffee mugs or T-shirts or on display on the walls of our home. He is saying, I have learned how I can do all things as I face the ups and downs of life, the unexpected, the inconveniences, the persecution, the setbacks. And so here we are, Calvary Baptist family. We find ourselves in a situation that none of us would have chosen. The coronavirus has changed our world in four and a half months. But Philippians 4.13 is as true for us as it was for Paul when he wrote it. And I wish to say again, Calvary Baptist Church, as David said, this is not normal. This is not how church was meant to be done. We're meant to gather, to be a community, to be a family, and to express God's glorious kingdom that the girls sang about so well this morning. We're called to show the world how God has adopted us into his family, how Jesus came and lived and died for sin, and to give us hope as we struggle against viruses and disease and evil and hurt and pain. And then... We show them faith, faith in God, faith in the gospel, faith in the future. We've been given Jesus. He's our intercessor, our advocate, our savior, our Lord. God is now our father. Paul could pray like he did because God is his father, eternal life with him in a creation that functions the way it was meant to be. So in 2020... In a world none of us would have chosen. If we believe this, we can be patient and gracious, thankful, joyful, even happy when life isn't what we choose it to be. Why? Because we have an eternal hope in the face of setbacks and sickness and loss and suffering even death. Is it any wonder that the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which, by by the way, was written by the Apostle John, who wrote the passage that Paul just read for us, was written to churches. Churches that were struggling, just like maybe we are today. In a world very much like ours, a world looking for meaning and hope and answers 
Calvary, listen, friends and visitors that are watching this right now, I want to say this emphatically. God is alive. God is working. Jesus is real. Amen. If you're out there, amen. Okay? He came to this earth and he lived for us. He died for you and I. And now Jesus reigns. And he reigns, listen to me now, over heaven and earth, over sin and death and pain, over evil and Satan and the hurt we do and cause each other. John writes in Revelation 21 to give us hope and the promise and the loving alternative to, I believe, the passage I got to preach through in John chapter 11. He writes to those who are trying to make sense of this world, those who think they can make the world a better place, that only God can do that and it's actually already begun. Listen to these words. I promise you, this is all leading into my passage. John says in Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Who can't love these words? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said this, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making this. It's just a process that's happening. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Remember the second last saying on the cross? It is finished. And now it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Oh, Calvary family, listen, wherever you are right now, whether you're watching me on a screen alone or as a couple, as a family, whether you're with friends watching, listening to this live stream, can I say as I just get to my sermon that we need to be in prayer as a church? And we need to find ways to gather. So whether you're in your bubbles, whether we do it in our allowable life groups, when we can have some, some form of truth, and we thought we were going to pull this off this Sunday, and I'm going to tell you about what we're hoping to do next, let me ask you and prepare you now. Please, please, I beg of you, come. But let's, in the meantime, show God and each other and the world our love for God and our love for each other and our love for the world. Let's live out Philippians 4.13 and Revelation 21 that it is true and real. Yes, now I, I know and realize we've got restrictions. There's fears of second waves and further lockdowns. We've got to sanitize our hands and stay within our bubbles and we don't shake hands or hug. And likely if we go to church in the coming weeks, we'll have to wear masks in hopes to sing. And yes, it'll all be weird and even inconvenient. But Philippians 4.13 is true. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I believe that if we rally together, and live out our faith, God will be glorified, the world will be amazed, but mostly, 
we will be blessed. We'll learn from Paul how to abound and how to struggle. And if you do and will, then you'll understand why John writes what he does in John chapter 11. You'll understand this invitation to believe and the caution to put off and the warning if you ignore or oppose Christ. My goal is to finish John chapter 11 with you today. I want to remind you, especially if you are a friend or a visitor, I've been walking through this incredible gospel that I would encourage you so profoundly to read a lot. Seven miracles of Jesus. John calls them signs. He chose these seven signs very specifically for a specific reason and a specific purpose. You see, John the apostle in writing his gospel has an agenda. He's got a motive for writing about the life of Jesus. When he's done, he wants you to know something and then he wants you to do something. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that I know Calvary family, you probably have memorized by now. I've said it this many times. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These seven I have chosen are chosen for the reason that you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you see that last part? John's agenda does come with a result. In other words, John is claiming that if you know and understand who Jesus is, and if you'll believe in him and trust him and follow him, then this is what happens. You'll have life in his name. After all, remember I've told you this, John is actually called the gospel of belief. He's crafted under the inspiration of God these seven signs. And to this point, five I am statements. Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He cleansed the temple in John chapter 2. He healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He made the lame man, who we'll we'll talk about in a minute, in John chapter 5. He fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Healed the man born blind, never been done in human history in John chapter 9. And then, my last four Sundays that I preached through John chapter 11, raised Lazarus from the dead which in and of itself had been done before, but never had a man been dead and buried in a tomb for four days. 96 hours. And these signs, these seven miracles were done for individuals, for groups, and they all evoked a response. Every one of them, every time. Many believed. Some rejected. More were curious. But John also told us that Jesus made some bold claims about himself. He told the multitudes in John chapter 6 that I am the bread of life. After he had just fed thousands, he told the religious establishment at the end of the Feast of Booths that I am the light of the world. They were there celebrating all of this light and how Yahweh was light. And Jesus says, listen, you need to realize I am the light of the world. He told them well that he was the door. I am the door. I am the way to God as Father. I am the good shepherd. And that was insulting to the religious establishment. And that you see that in our passage of John 11. He told Martha, 
a woman who was very dear to him, a woman who loved Jesus, a woman who had just watched her brother get sick and die, a woman that had just buried her brother and held a funeral for him. And now days later, Jesus comes and says, Martha, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. The greatest human miracle of them all, a man dead for four days. Decomposition has started. The spirit or soul of the man is believed to be gone in Jewish folklore. All hope was gone. (laughs) And yet we learned that hope was actually there because Jesus is there. He is the resurrection and the life. And you've gotten a glimpse. When I preach this through, you read John chapter 11, 1 to 44, you will see Jesus in his power and his plan. You get a glimpse of his personality, his emotions. He wept and his soul grieved. But ultimately, we see God display love and authority. And we learn when you look deep into that, it changes our perspective. Can I ask, have you noticed how many unanswered questions come as a result of this miracle? There are clearly many other things we might have liked to learn. What did Lazarus experience in the grave? What was his time like in his death? Many people that have death experiences write books. What was his book like? But John doesn't give us any of the Peripheral details. Everything is sacrificed to the sign itself, to what it anticipates, even to the way it precipitates an arousing of the authorities. You see, John the Apostle chooses instead to focus on how people reacted to Jesus. And I, I think that's a re- there's a reason for this. You see, we tend to focus on the details when we need to look at the purpose and the person behind what we are to notice. Often when I was growing up and in my business years, when I worked in the retail world and even in my years of ministry and especially as a biblical counselor, when you're dealing with what people are supposed to look at or what we should evaluate, we'll use this expression, if you want to know what went wrong with the train crash, you got to go to where the train came off the tracks. But so often we're tempted to look at all of the wreckage that it caused. And we look at all of the damage that the train caused in its wreck. But we need to find out what caused the train to go off its tracks. And this is what John wants you to see. If you listened, this is what Paul read for you. John wants us to identify with. John wants you and I to make a decision. Who are we in this gospel that bears his name? Look at verse 45 again, right? Many believed, some doubted, some panicked, some rejects. And before Paul is going to show us the transformative power of Jesus on a life, when we look at the life of Mary in the beginning of John chapter 12, he takes the time to end this great miracle, this seventh sign, showing us the tragic delusion, the lack of sight, of those who reject, or even more, shows us how God uses even those who reject to still accomplish His will, and His plan is fulfilled. Today, as you look at 45 to 57, ultimately, you and I will have a reaction to Jesus. Everyone does. Don't kid yourself. Every one of you, no matter Male or female, no matter what age you are, no matter if you were raised in church, born in the church, doesn't matter. Every one of you has a reaction to Jesus. Think about 9-11. 
you think about all the different types of reactions to 9-11, depending on your perspective. Some people saw those planes crashing into those buildings and those buildings crashing down and the thousands of lives that were lost. And in certain countries, they danced with joy and burned a flag, while in others, people wept. Even something like that profoundly affected the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And then you come into July 26th of 2020 and you think of the coronavirus world that you and I are now living in. And now, how are people reacting? Reacting to government leaders, reacting to health ministers, reacting to the doctors in charge of public health. And we think about mask or no mask, politics, denominations. Some agree, some, some don't. Some applaud while others say foul. And did you see the reactions? As Paul read the passage, verse 45, many believed, but some panicked, some rejected, some were curious, but everybody reacted. Everyone had an opinion. Everyone made a choice. And John is all telling us about this particular reaction because he wants you and I to react as well. And now we're back to John chapter 20, 30 and 31. And so for just a couple of minutes, will you allow me to walk us through these reactions? Because really, if I sum up what I want to say for the next couple of minutes, I really want to ask you once again, who is Jesus to you? Is he a religious figure, uh, a person that hangs on a cross, a crucifix that you wear on a gold chain or a silver chain around your neck? Is it someone that's hung on a picture on a cross on the walls of your home? Is he someone's name you use to express your anger or frustration? Is Jesus the punchline of a joke? Or do you think Jesus is nothing more than a myth or a madman or the religion that my parents brought me up on? <coughs> Excuse me. Is Jesus your religious good luck charm, your comparative way of life? And I beg you, take note of the religious leaders in our passage. Because actually, it's the religious leaders that are the most vindictive. But they are also the most convinced that they're religious and pious. I guarantee you when they gathered, they probably opened in prayer. They probably had copies of the Torah. They had their version of the Bible. And yet, as you're about to see, they're the most self-deceived. And John tells us the danger is to condemn them without ever asking yourself, am I that? And this is hard for some of you because it's hard for me. When you've been raised around church or you were born into the church, you've been a good person, you quote unquote made a decision and you know the language, you've done the stuff, you're used to church and all of our uh, verbiage that we use, but are you truly believing in and trusting Jesus? I mean, friends, listen, for those of you that say Calvary is your church family, can I ask you? Why do you call it that? Why do you attend Calvary Baptist, serve in Calvary Baptist, give to or support Calvary Baptist? Or have you stopped? Why? Are you more concerned with your image, getting your way, making sure you preserve what's only important to you at any cost? See, that's religion. That's not a relationship. That's not trusting Jesus. That's a partnership. Do you consider others more important than yourself, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us? 
I only say this because a passage like John 11, 45 to 57 will seem dull and even filler unless you're willing to self-evaluate. Plus, you're going to miss the wonderful, glorious gospel message of joy and hope in a passage like this if you only are defensive or dismissive. So will you just take a couple of more minutes with me and say, speak to me, Lord. Show me what and why you preserve this passage. What am I supposed to learn? Because notice, number one, if you're taking notes, the many who believed. Notice with me the many who believed in John eleven forty five. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, Christ did, believed in him. John simply says many believed in him. And who wouldn't? Lazarus is alive. He's been brought back to life. At the beginning of John chapter 12, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will see a banquet is being thrown for him. Um, How weird would that be? Think about how weird that was. Many of the people at this banquet in John 12 attended this man's funeral. But praise God, many believed. But you're going to see a pattern here. The Bible is quite simple about those who accept Jesus and trust him and follow him. Numbers are largely... Many believed. 3,000 were added. 5,000 were added. You see, the focus on transformation is more focused on individual lives or specific churches. And there's a reason for that because when someone trusts Jesus, it changes you, right? Now hang on to that. But I'm not sure about you because I kind of wonder, why did John include this? Like, why is he such a killjoy? Lazarus is, 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 is raised. Why, why get into all of these reactions? And yet each gospel writer lets us know how Jesus is rejected and betrayed and arrested and abused and beaten and then crucified for us. But why this? Why, why now? Why here? I mean, what a miracle. Don't you feel like I do? I want the Disney ending. And they all lived happily ever after. A man is alive, a family's restored, folks are believing, hope is blooming, and who wouldn't want this to be true? I mean, don't you want that to be true? I do. I long for this. I mean, think of the world that you and I live in. It's not just the coronavirus. Think about the pain and the hurt and the uncertainty and the unknown. Yes, there's the economics and the politics but there's the raw living with this personally, right? I mean, now I get up and I go outside and I have to evaluate everywhere I'm going to go and who I'm going to interact with. I got to make sure there's a mask in my glove compartment and there's a a bottle of hand sanitizer in my truck everywhere I go. And I got to make sure everything I do, I got to make sure I don't touch my face and touch my nose. I got to make sure I don't hug anybody. And who wouldn't want this? And then there's the raw living that I was. Who will I hang out with? Church, no church? And who doesn't want to be healthy and have friends and be loved? Who of us doesn't want peace and safety? Last time I checked, people still want marriages to last, that men and women would be faithful and kind to each other, that parents and families would be strong. And don't miss the second half of the verse, verse 45 into verse 46, because there's another group, not that many believed, there's another group who just went off and curiously told the leaders everything. They've got interest. They've got questions, but they never come to a point of a decision. And so that leads us in verse, at the end of verse 46 
to the murderers who rejected Jesus. Now, it's praise God in verse 45, many believed. But now, John wants you and I to know about those who rejected Jesus. You see, there's a group who don't believe, but rather go and tell the Jewish leaders about this thing that Jesus did. And might I remind you that this is similar. You've seen this happen before. In John chapter 5, when Jesus heals the man paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda, John wants us to notice Because when that guy gets healed, he runs off and blames Jesus. He rats out Jesus as well. Here's a guy who was healed of 30 years and yet doesn't believe. And you're going to realize, verse 46, those who have witnessed the greatest miracle of human history to this point not only refuse to believe, they turn informant. And that reminds me of another man in the Bible, in the Gospels, named Lazarus. In Luke chapter 16, we hear the story of the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And they both die. The rich man goes to hell and to eternal judgment and torment. The poor man, Lazarus, is a believer who goes to Abraham's paradise of heaven as we know it. And there's a conversation that happens between Abraham and the rich man. And he asks for the tiniest relief. He asks if Lazarus could come and dip the tip of his finger in water and touch the tip of his tongue. And now he has turned into the greatest evangelist because now he wants someone to go and tell his family. And he begs Abraham that Lazarus could be raised from the dead. Don't miss these connections and go back and tell his family. But listen to what Abraham says. They have Moses and the prophets. By the way, that's his way of saying they've got the Bible Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe the Bible, then they will, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. And John 11 is, ta-da. Here it is, a guy named Lazarus, four days in a grave, raised from the dead. And next week we're going to learn, they plot how to kill Lazarus. This is the reaction of religion. Notice the question that is asked on verse 47. What are we to do? And that, my friends, is the question. The old hymn says, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? And in our passage that Paul read, they rehearsed their dilemma. Notice this, for this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid. Why? Because they know what the outcome is going to be. Yet the fact that everyone will believe in Jesus is actually not their greatest concern. It's that the Romans will come and take, now see this, our place and our nation. Notice the nation's even second. They're most worried about their position and their possessions. And that reminds me of Matthew chapter 13. Remember when Jesus explains that parable of the sower and the seed, and Jesus says, as for that which was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet it has no root in himself So it endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he or she falls away. And as for that which was sown among thorns, 
That's the one who hears the words. Now watch this. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Here's high priest, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious elite. They read the Bible. They prayed. They gave money. They served. They've been pious. Only motivated by power, position, and stuff. And now they're in full panic mode. Now watch this because this is another guy. When you read your Bible holistically, you will make all these connections because we're introduced to a high priest named Caiaphas. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, that year just simply means at, uh, the year that all this is taking place. And look at what he says. You don't know anything, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, notice what John fills in the gaps for us. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, this literally makes me laugh out loud every time. And this is where I'm going to land and bring it home for us. Here is a priest, a high priest. He represented the people to God, and he was the one that was supposed to point the nation to God. And yet, he's rude and he's proud, and he's cocky, and he's arrogant. And that, my friends, is religion without relationship. It's having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest, he became the high priest in A.D. 18, and he was there for 18 years. This is the same Caiaphas that in a few chapters will preside over the arrest and trial and crucifixion of Jesus. This is the same Caiaphas who will reappear in Acts chapter 4 when he threatens Peter and John. But look at our passage. He basically says, you numbskulls, you don't have a, a clue. And he lays out a plan. He basically says, look, we just need to kill Jesus. Let's get rid of him. And I, I get it. Some people will be upset, but they won't do anything about it. And Rome, well, they might give us a little rap on the knuckles. But watch now. Better that Jesus die and we take some heat than we lose our nation and our position. You see, Caiaphas isn't saying this from a point of view of belief. He's not saying this because he sees Jesus as God in the flesh or the gospel. And yet I believe John records this for us because this is exactly what you and I are supposed to take from this passage. You can try to ignore Jesus or reject him. You can even want Jesus to leave you alone or worse, shut up. But you can't stop the love of God. The glory of God, the plan of God for this world and for your life. To know what? Deny him all you want. Plan and scheme to get away from him or to stop him or to quiet him. But the love of God only shines brighter. It's the essence of Romans 5.8. But God poured out his love towards you and I, even though we were still sinners, running from God, sinning ourselves into hell. And yet God loves us. And this man, Caiaphas, this man actually says all the right words, but for all the wrong reasons. And to quote my friend Steve Daw, when him and I were talking about this passage, the only one defeated by the rejection of Jesus is you. Mic drop. Caiaphas was, eight, was 18 years the high priest. 
He makes this statement, and yet he sees it through into the crucifixion of Jesus. But Jesus rises again from the dead. He ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, anoints and empowers the disciples and many more in Acts chapter 1. Peter would become a different man, transformed and emboldened. And this same Caiaphas would watch these disciples of Jesus do and speak like Jesus. And literally thousands would come to Christ, priests included, by the way. Read it in Acts chapter 6. He couldn't stop Jesus. He couldn't stop the plan of God. In fact, in our passage, like Balaam in the Old Testament, this rejecter of Jesus is made to prophesy for Jesus. And this is what John wants you and I to see. God's plans can't be stopped. The gospel is true. Jesus is who he claims to be. J.M. Boyce says, you can't frustrate God. You can't oppose him. You can only pay the consequences. Or you may oppose him, but Christianity will spread. The Bible says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. The love of God is greater far. God's love for us is so strong, so purposeful, so amazing, so divine. Not only does it demand my life, my love, my all, it's a love that can't be stopped or taken away or defeated. Yes! (laughs) Only Jesus can give us this, and we're going to see it illustrated next week in John chapter 12. But listen, the only one defeated by the rejection of Jesus is yourself. And that leads us to the end of the passage because Jesus goes and hangs out down in Ephraim before the third and final Passover comes and then the multitudes who are curious and they ask a very interesting question. The religious leader said, what are we going to do? And that's a question you and I have to answer. But the curious said, what do you think? And that's also something that you have to deal with. They're curious and confused. They're curious but unconvinced. They're curious but cowards. They don't believe. They talk a good game. They listen. They ask questions, but they won't risk it. We're right back to Matthew 13 again. But I mean, who wouldn't be curious at Jesus, right? He's, here's the man giving health back to the sick, walking on water, feeding thousands. He can raise the dead. Think about it. Jesus is a social justice dream come true. Uh, except he has a moral compass. There is a right and a wrong, and there is a decision to be made. You see, Jesus says, you've got to admit, I'm actually a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus says, I love you, and I will live for you, and I will die for you, but you have to see the fact that you're the problem. I'm the problem. We're the problem. Jesus tells each and every one of us, that only he is the solution. And 2,000 years ago, and again today, here in July of 2020, we like to point out the problems, but never admit that we are the problem. We love, we are victims. We cry on fear and don't look at me. We demand payment from others, for others, but not from ourselves. But Jesus says, I want you to look into the mirror. Jesus tells us to respect our government, but that government won't solve the issues of the heart. Jesus exposes religion that you can't legislate love into a man or woman's heart. But the tragedy of this group is that unbelief is like belief. It can't be static. It moves. And if all you ever are is curious of Christ, eventually you'll deny him. And so I end with these words from an old Ron Hamilton song. He wrote this song, What Will You Do With Jesus? He who redeemed your soul. What will you do with Jesus? He who can make you whole. 
sovereign of all the ages, savior of Calvary. What will you do with Jesus? He's the only one who can set you free. Oh, my friends, what will you do with Jesus, he who became your sin? What will you do with Jesus, he who can cleanse within, giver of life eternal, victor of hell's domain? What will you do with Jesus? Gladly he bore your pain. What will you do with Jesus? He's the conquering Lord of all. What will you do with Jesus? Come now while you hear his call. Follow his steps to Calvary. Humbly before him bow. What will you do with Jesus? Call on his mercy now. How are you going to respond? You have three choices. You can try to ignore Jesus, drown him out in the affairs of your life. Or you can try to oppose Jesus, say thanks but no thanks, I'm not interested. Or you can humbly believe in Jesus. John chapter 11, in a coronavirus world of July of 2020, Jesus is sent by God to show us himself, his glory, his love, his perfection, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his patience, his plan. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you. He will transform you. Jesus and only Jesus can answer all of the questions that you really have. He'll make sense of this world, offers you hope in the midst of the chaos, and gives you an eternal perspective with eternal life. And I'm pleading with you today, do you know Jesus? Will you believe like the many? Will you trust Jesus? Will you cry out to Jesus and know his love for you? Ask him right now to forgive you and experience peace and the easing of your burdens. Won't you call on his mercy? And church, listen to me. Here's the warning. I put this on my Facebook this morning. Bob Goff says, our problem following Jesus is we're trying to be a better version of us rather than a more accurate reflection of Jesus. We are called to be like Christ, not to be good people. Jesus died for us so we could live like him, be with him, and show others to him. And that's what I'm going to unpack next week. But I ask you this morning, do you know him? Don't ignore Jesus. Oh, please, don't reject him. Believe in him. And that will change your life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach once again. Lord, I love your word. I love to preach. But I love you more. You have changed my life. Lord, my life was a mess. I was hell-bound, living only for me, making excuses, making defenses of everything that I did wrong while blaming everybody else, Lord, including you. And yet in your mercy and grace and patience, you saved my soul. And you've been changing my life ever since. And to you and you only belong the glory. So Lord, when I plead with my friends and family and guests and visitors that are watching this particular Uh, service right now. It's not with pride or condescension or arrogance. It's not because I'm smarter or better. It's because I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I want other people to know the Jesus who loves me and has saved me. 
And Lord, I pray that my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will see this passage is meant to make us pause and ponder and ask ourselves, do I truly believe Jesus or am I playing games at the foot of the cross? Oh God, go before us this day. Change me, change us because of this. And Lord Jesus, heal our country of this virus if it be your will and pleasure. Bring the church of God back together. And Lord, open the doors for us to live out the gospel no matter what the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.